Hi everyone and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast where we look at how behavioural and social sciences are being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. My name is Stu King and I am a co-host of the show with my esteemed colleague and friend Dr Tiago Motella. Tiago, welcome. How are you? Hello, I'm very good. How are you Stu? I'm very good also. Uh, we've got uh, a pack. Well, I've got another admission to make, to be honest with you. We had some lovely uh, comments about the show with uh, Mary Johnston, who I'm uh, a little bit in love with, by the way. Um, but we, we had a lovely, lovely, we had a load of lovely comments about that show. So that was really good. But we are back with a slightly strange show yet again. Um, again, because we recorded uh, a show back in August 2021 with Rachel from um, Zinc, um, some of the information wasn't actually correct uh, anymore because they were doing projects that weren't, weren't available anymore and stuff. So we said we'd do a quick five minutes just to pick up, get the right information onto the onto the show, and I'd cut it together. And inevitably, we ended up spending another forty minutes talking. And instead of trying to cut it all together and missing out on some great stuff, what we've done is taken out the bits that aren't um, relevant in this show. But we've actually split the show in two. So you've got the show today that we recorded back in 2021 and then in a week's time we're going to release another show uh, with the rest of our stuff because to be honest selfishly Tiago and I just found it so interesting to listen to because what she's doing is so interesting um, so um, Tiago why don't you uh, tell us about the conference that's coming up for the BSPHN Yes, uh, uh, before that, I, f I feel that p part of me, I just came here and disrupted uh, the system a bit. That's why we're now also releasing two parts on this one. Uh, but yeah, so before we introduce our lovely guest, I just wanted to remind everyone that the BSBHN conference is this week. There's a lot going on, like a lot. Um, and it's the first mm, mm. in-person conference since COVID. So we're both very, very excited to get super geeky and uh, connect with other like-minded people. That's true. I, I actually can't wait to go and just meet other. I've been to a number of the conferences in in real life, and they are great fun. I mean, really, genuinely great fun. So, um, because you're such a dork, I know you're going to love it. I don't think you've been before. It's your first, isn't it? Uh, it's going to be my first, yes. And it's also, funnily yeah. enough, is a conference Aston, so in Birmingham. Uh, just I know, by in my your alma mater as well. I did. Exactly. Yes. Very. It's going to be the the return, my return to to Birmingham. And to the return to Birmingham. Oh, wow. What a uh, what a treat. What a treat for That's them. Um, right now, uh, we don't want to. This show's already going to be long enough. Let me introduce our esteemed guest. So, Dr. Rachel Carey is a behavioural scientist with a background in health psychology, and following the completion of her PhD at the National University of Ireland in Galway, Rachel took up a post at UCL in 2014. And she worked with Professor Susan Mickey on the theories and techniques of behaviour change project. In 2016, she joined Booper's UK clinical team as a senior behaviour change research advisor, where she led a collaborative programme of work with UCL. Over the past five years as Zinc's chief scientist, which is a great title, uh, Rachel has built an ever-growing interdisciplinary research and development team whose work with startup founders to create new scalable and impact driven innovations is um, sort of quite unique in that industry. In 2020, Rachel was awarded the UKRI Future Leaders Fellowship, supporting her work to scale up Zinc's R&D activities. And the ambition with this work is to create a connected R&D system for the social and behavioural sciences, mobilising talent and knowledge across sectors to accelerate impact on important problems. Rachel also has an honorary role at UCL and is an associate for the UCL Centre for Behaviour Change. It's a pretty uh, long Stu, list of stuff. Uh, yeah. Before we jump to actually why people are mm -hmm. listening to this, can I just... Um, mm -hmm. 
spend 30 seconds to ask people to do us a favor. Um, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, if you could do it now and leave us a review and rate the show, that'll be super cool uh, for us. And if you've got one thing to do in the next 30 seconds, if you could send this to um, a friend, a colleague, someone you like or yes, dislike, yes. that could also be something that you could do. Uh, we'd massive, would massively appreciate do it. Do it now. Do it. Do it now. Okay, without any further ado, we will um, go over to the show. Okay, welcome to the show, Rachel. Thanks, Stu. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. No worries at all. Really excited to have you here. Uh, why don't you start by telling us a little bit, Rachel, about um, where you are, what, your journey to where you are now. Yeah, sure. So I'm a behavioral scientist, a background in psychology. I did a PhD straight after my undergrad, both at the National University of Ireland, Galway. Mm -hmm. And my PhD looked at driver risk taking and the use of threat based campaigns in the context of road safety. I'd become mm -hmm. interested in this area of health risk behavior and what we can do to deter people from engaging in behaviors that are that are risky. Um, so I did my did my PhD straight after my undergrad in that area. It was kind of at the intersection, I suppose, of health and social psychology, and also touched on other fields like communication science and transport as well. And it was basically all about behavior change, even though I might not have used the term behavioral science or or fully understood that world as much at the time, or at least starting out um, and then I worked on a couple of projects as a consultant for a couple of charities after I finished my PhD and then ended up doing a postdoc at University College London working with Professor Susan Mickey who is a previous guest on this show I think. Long time she's been on about 12 times. I Has think, she? Yeah yeah she's been on a lot. Well so worked with Susan for about two and a half years at UCL um, on a huge project that looked at the mechanisms of action underlying behaviour change techniques. So essentially yeah. trying to build our understanding of yeah. how behaviour change interventions what work. What time is this, Rachel? I'm just trying to place it in the sort of timeline of when BCTs and that were all Yeah, it was, that's a really interesting question. Um, so the project started in summer of 2014, Right. Um, and so, yeah, it was the kind of follow on project to the BCT taxonomy yeah. project in a so way. Combi was out. And then Combi we was out, the BCT taxonomy, V1 was out. And this was a sort of follow on from that to try and, I suppose, go a layer underneath it and help understand for each of those behavior change techniques, what is the mechanism of action that um, links them to behavior change, I suppose. Yeah. So that was the that was the not at all complicated and ambitious <laughs> and challenging project, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which was a huge learning curve and amazing experience. Um, and coming towards the end of that, I didn't make a sort of unilateral or categorical decision to leave academia, um, but I was curious about research roles in mm. outside of higher education so I ended up taking my first quote unquote industry job in yeah. 2016 autumn of 2016 and have basically been working outside of academia ever since in a couple of different roles mm -hmm. 
and what, what so what roles did you did you take and then where are you now yeah so the first job that i took was in a newly formed behavioral science team at bupa who were yeah. a big healthcare company um that was as part of a partnership with ucl that already existed it was a one-year kind of standalone post mm -hmm. and it was a mixture of capacity building i.e training people in the business on the basics of behavioral science and um and that was within the clinical team which is where we were nested but also in other parts of the business as well and included mm. delivering workshops in melbourne and sydney um because physically because you had to go there to do physically that? yeah great gig what a great yeah gig. it was it was a, it was a brilliant experience and um because bupa's got um an international organization it was also just interesting thinking about different contexts and and healthcare in different contexts so that was kind of pretty it was i maybe was about maybe six months in at that point so yeah it was amazing an amazing opportunity and um actually as part of the first few months as well in a similar vein we had the chance to make some behavioral science animated videos as a kind of internal e-learning resource which was a oh, lot of fun and yeah. completely different to anything i'd done before so a lot of the work was kind of upskilling capacity building yeah. training but we so, did so also what is it what does it involve then um what, what what types of things are you training the i presume you're trying to get everyone up to a certain level rather than sort of you know having a varied training course if you like for people to go on in, yeah in definitely and it obviously depends on the on the kind of team you're working with and the person you're speaking to it was partly raising the profile of behavioral science so mm -hmm. helping people to understand why it's useful why it's valuable why it's relevant and then once that sort of initial sales pitch if you like had been had been done it was kind of helping people to understand what some of the frameworks and tools that exist in behavioral science are and, and how they can be used in practice. Yeah. So things like Combi and the behavior change wheel, which are pretty intuitive and, and people find quite kind of easy and helpful to grasp. Mm -hmm. So um, it what we found was that rather than, de rather than delivering workshops and training in the abstract or as a kind of general capacity building exercise, the more helpful approach was to find a team or a project that had a particular need or a particular problem they were trying to crack and focus the whole workshop on that so it became really yeah. concrete really quickly. Super contextualized and very pragmatic. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and then we did also a, lot, a bit of our own work and projects and kind of internal consultancy as well so mm -hmm. looking at things like uptake of digital health products and services and colleagues of mine worked on a project around flu vaccination uptake among healthcare workers so we did a few kind of of our own research projects um and then mm -hmm. the, the capacity and training um capacity building and training that i mentioned as well great so that was the that was the year at bupa and then i was coming towards the end of that uh, weighing up some different options and around that time this new organization called Zinc was getting started and the CEO of that reached out and we had a chat and I ended up joining that early team in autumn of 2017 um, as their chief scientist and have been there have been there ever since. Great. I mean that that sh that that move into Booper was actually the way you described it. It sounds like it was a 
a nice safe move actually because of the partnership with UCL anyway you had that sort of gentle you didn't have to make that jarring choice between academia and industry that's that's a nice transition actually isn't it definitely and also because I joined a team of public health specialists and behavioral scientists and we were nested within a clinical Mm. team I think that also made the transition a little bit smoother or it felt a bit more familiar than it might have otherwise and of course it's a learning curve and you know the kind of moving into any huge international organization like that is going to require a um a bit of training and learning on a new language and timelines and culture but it was it was a smoother and easier transition than i feared and i think that was partly because i continued to have a relationship with ucl and because i had moved into a team that mm. felt like a research team basically yeah 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 that sounds great and and um so you're chief scientist now at at zinc um and what so what does that involve what's your role at zinc then what, what are you doing on the day-to-day and what and, and on the longer term you know on the strategic side as well yeah so i have found myself in the weird and wonderful world of startups and entrepreneurship and early stage innovation mm. um so i work with mostly with entrepreneurs and innovators and also researchers who want to create a product or service that is scalable and impactful and based in science and that addresses an important societal challenge. So we run, Zinc runs a number of different programs, um, including one working with academics. Uh, We've been been working with UK Research and Innovation, UKRI, on a program Mm -hmm. for academics who want to translate a research project that relates to healthy aging into a scalable and sustainable product or service. Um, But the main program that we run is a venture builder for individual people who want to start their own business and who are sort of pre-team, pre-idea. So not an accelerator for existing startups. We start a few steps further back. Um, You said, what did you say there? Pre-team? Pre-team. Yeah, i.e. so we take on people as individuals. We don't take on teams of people that are looking to co-found something together. We start kind of a few steps further back. Essentially, we start from scratch and we take on people that care deeply about... The idea phase sort of type thing. Yeah, not even. So um, we... Not even... They just cut just, just motivated people, but they don't know what they're basically to do yet. Yeah. Wow. How they, do you find them? So, Where are so they? They, they have to be motivated by a particular mission. Um, and we bring together people that are from a pretty broad range of different backgrounds, um, pretty kind of diverse in terms of their skill sets, their nationalities, age, etc., and they're all kind of unified by this one mission and and committed yeah, to doing right. something within that. And our role is to help support them to yeah. develop a new product or service from scratch, basically. Yeah. I mean, not to be too dorky about this, but you're sort of providing uh, the psychological capability with them and, and physical infrastructure. You know, the, yeah, the yeah, exactly. Social opportunities. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. You could it's easily combi categorize yeah, the programs. Yeah, exactly. Ha- have you done that? I, I have not. Have. Oh, you should, <laughs> Rachel. You should have, and you certainly should have lied then as well. You should have said you've done that. <laughs> no, you should. Um, this, is, this is fascinating. I mean, I, I sort of come from a, an entrepreneurial background myself and I would have loved someone to give me some support at that early stage. Um, but what I find though, and I, I was speaking to um, someone who wanted to be an entrepreneur uh, from, a, from a, he was working for Busybodies actually a, a while ago and he said, I want to be an entrepreneur. 
and I'm really motivated to do it. But he didn't have an idea. And, and I, I can't relate to that because I, I, I now class myself as an entrepreneur, but it took me a long time to actually adopt that and people were saying to me for a long time. But I, I just, I'm, I'm all ideas and then the practicalities aren't there for me. I have to have people to help me do the, you know, the more logistical things. And I can't imagine being an entrepreneur without the ideas. That's, that's what entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur is to me. How, how, how are you finding people who you think would be entrepreneurs without I don't, I don't judging know, them I, on the, the basis bit, I don't of their get idea? It. Yeah. What are you yeah. actually, how are you finding these people? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things to say. One is if we brought together 70 people, all of whom are determined to be the ideas person, yeah. that would feel like a recipe for disaster because they have to be forming teams with each other. So we need some people that are that are the creative ideators and we also need some people that are the implementer executors and we need some people that are somewhere in the middle or can play different roles for different purposes at different times. The other thing to say is we say that we are pre-idea, i.e. we don't bring people on on the basis of an idea they have and we're looking for people that are open-minded. In reality, most of the people that join our programs are buzzing with ideas. So the important thing is that they're not completely anchored in one because we put them through a program which is very problem-led and a lot of it is focused on building a deep understanding of the problem before moving into developing a solution. So they have to be open-minded, but they are the type of people that come buzzing with ideas. So, yeah, um, yeah I think... So I think you do get that. Yeah, yeah. We do get that. Yeah, and I know I, I, I would class myself in this and I know lots of other people who are entrepreneurial, but not not financially motivated and um they struggle to call themselves an entrepreneur and sort of you know embrace that because that feels very um financially driven or or traditional in terms of like you know get in build something get out make money etc and it's not all like that and i think it's important that there are schemes that help demonstrate that you don't have to be money focused to be an entrepreneur i think that's really really important because there's some of the you know some of the entrepreneurs i know are some of the brightest people i've met some of the most creative some of the most driven etc and equally they they are often in in areas that aren't just about making money as well and even some that are are still doing great things you know for the for the world as well as definitely uh, making money at the same time definitely and i think the kind of traits that characterize entrepreneurship are skills and traits and characteristics you get in a whole bunch of different settings and sectors Mm. in fact i think researchers are tend to be incredibly entrepreneurial in lots of ways they're operating in especially early career researchers in a context of uncertainty trying to win funding trying to get teams together making progress and and startups are basically just a series of of experiments but the the kind of particular context that we're operating in is building commercial startups that are that are scalable and sustainable. Um, And that's not to say that that's the only way or the best way. It's just the kind of particular space we're in. But we're operating on the assumption that if you've built the product and the business model in the right way from the beginning, the more commercial success you have, the more social impact you'll have or the more impact you'll have on the problem you've set out to solve. So the two shouldn't have to um, conflict with each other if you've built it in the right way from the beginning. Yeah. And you should avoid, well, 
insofar as is possible those those mistakes that all entrepreneurs make um particularly when building teams you know there, there's endless yep. mistakes that we've made god hundreds thousands um in in how to build teams how to how to grow properly when, yep. <laughs> all the different stages that you might end up at um but what i mean and, and as a concept i find this fascinating and I'll, i'm going to talk to you more about it afterwards but um <laughs> i i so you're you're a behavioral scientist though so so you're trying to apply behavioral science into this process how is that being translated this shows real world behavioral science so uh, this is why it's particularly interesting talking to you rachel today how are you translating your your experience your academic experience and your industry experience into helping these entrepreneurs or these budding potential entrepreneurs use behavioral science in this in their in their endeavors yeah so um i mean i it won't be a surprise i think to anyone who's listening to hear that behavioral science tools and frameworks and models are incredibly useful and valuable and important in developing new products and services um mm. and in my role at zinc and and also in bupa and in some of the other consultancy roles i've had i've used frameworks like combi and the behavior change wheel all the time often in conjunction with other approaches and other uh, tools like design thinking for example in my current job yeah. and i think yeah there's there's a it goes back a little bit to what i said earlier you can probably divide it in two some of it is still training and helping to kind of upskill people on the basics of behavioral science mm. and then some of it is doing doing some hands-on work so it's up to individual applied behavioral scientists usually to decide how much they want to teach people to fish and how much fishing they want to do ourselves yeah. Yeah. um but a lot of it is um is training maybe give you a couple of examples of of mm. the ways that i uh use those types of frameworks in my current job so because we work as we've just talked about with very early stage entrepreneurs um obviously in the later stages and increasingly we do have a portfolio of startups that are growing and 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 moving um slightly further along it is more like running experiments to test product features and optimizing user experience measuring outcomes etc yeah it's a bit different in the early stages so give you a couple of examples of that with combi i've found it most helpful in organizing and structuring data and insights that come from user research so yeah. it the startup world has totally embraced being user centered and problem led and you rarely need to or i rarely need to convince anyone to go out and do user research before mm-hmm. designing something um the problem is that you know we'll often have founders coming to us who will have done a lot of user research maybe also spoken to experts maybe done some desktop research and we'll have this unwieldy spreadsheet or document with insights they've gathered and won't know quite how to structure it or how to synthesize it or digest it or how to move on to developing or designing something based on it and combi and and frameworks like that can be really helpful in in helping to structure those types of insights so if it's for example barriers and facilitators to financial planning among university students or physiotherapy exercise adherence among older adults mm. combi can help you to kind of lift out a level so that you're seeing 
trends or themes so that it's, it's a bit more digestible. And, and yeah. I found that really helpful. And I think that the founders that, that I've worked with have found it helpful to be able to, um, to yeah, extract out from a, a kind of very granular level to something a bit, a bit broader. Um, and then based on the context, based on the, the person I'm speaking to, you can sort of decide how much detail to go into, how much to go into the kind of theory yeah, and the background yeah. and how much to just make a recommendation based on what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. So um, I think there's something about just structuring and organizing insights that that Combi in particular can be really useful for. And then give you an example on the behavior change wheel. I think the the behavior change wheel and also the behavior change technique taxonomy have been useful in in a couple of ways. One, in opening up people's minds to the range of options that exist. I think people will tend to anchor themselves in a particular type of solution. Um, it's helpful to show, you know, there are 93 behavior change techniques. There are nine intervention functions to choose from. And it just helps sometimes to kind of lift people's sights from what they might yeah. have anchored themselves in. And that, again, won't be surprising. It's not all action planning. It's not all action planning. It's not all education. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And then the second way that I've found that helpful is in emphasizing the need for a rationale for the product feature you're developing or the type of solution you're designing. Mm -hmm. So tracking back to the understanding of the problem you've built through an analysis like Combi And I think it's a good way of challenging people's assumptions in quite an objective way to say, what is the purpose of that feature? Is it tracking back to a behavioral barrier you've identified? If it's not, what is it doing there? Which is a way of reducing user burden in some cases. And again, it's just a kind of objective structured way to challenge assumptions and and make the whole process more efficient. So those are some of the ways we've used them. Not just overindulging your own... Exactly. Feelings and proclivities towards a certain thing, um, which I think is hard actually to, to, to stop people thinking, with, especially with entrepreneurial types. They sort of get something in their mind and they feel it. Totally. And sometimes that's right. You know, it is, I've definitely, that's definitely been right. And, and I think someone like Rory Sutherland would talk about the fact that um, sometimes things work and we don't know why. And you couldn't have planned it, even yep. if you were doing, you know, using the BCTs to do it. But and we've certainly experienced that where we've had to retrospectively go back and try and understand things because we didn't know why it worked but it worked yeah <laughs> and so yep. but but I definitely think adding that structure and, and and I'm particularly interested in this because we're going through a process actually this is this podcast is recorded on behalf of the BSPHN which um as a mid mid podcast plug um you, you can join for 25 pounds if you're working 10 pounds if you're not bsphn.org.uk um but it, 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 we're, we're yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's as smooth as this podcast has ever been just <laughs> let me tell you um but the, the thing is we're going through a business planning process at the moment and, and even using the words like business planning can be uncomfortable for the people f- that we're working with that you know it, that are from a public health background and and i was uncomfortable with all these terms too when i was starting busybodies you know uh, all those years ago um and now i find that there's a and, and i've taken them through some some traditional business planning tools like um the the you know the oster wilder um stuff in, in doing the business model planning canvas and the value proposition canvas because mm-hmm. i find them really helpful mm-hmm. in going what are the pains and the gains that people are feeling on and that they want and what jobs do they need to do what are the, what are the re what are the things these people actually want from their careers and from from uh, and if it's not from their we're, we're talking about from their careers because we're a 
we're working with professionals, but it might be your customers. What, what do they yeah. want? And I think that's helped. Like, look, what, what can you track across to show what, what we're doing and what we can do to sort of alleviate pain and, and amplify gains? And I think those tools merged with behavioral science work brilliantly well because what you've, well, in the way you articulate it as well, which I think is really, really clear, um, you, you, it gives me a feeling um, of the, the, you know, the cross-fertilization between business, particularly in startups and particularly in tech and some of those other industries of user experience, for example, laden with behavioral science. They just don't totally. call it that stuff totally. most of the time. Yeah. And, and I think that when you're working with those, you must get these breaks from, yeah, of course, we're just, we're just going to do some UX research or, you know, some UI research or whatever. And you're like, yeah, it's got a name though. <laughs> you know, you can, you can actually structure that. That's a real thing. It's not just a Yeah, and I think it's, it's a kind of common misperception that people have that behavioral science or any science-based role in an organization like an early stage startup is this sort of separate good thing to have that is the right thing yeah. to do as opposed to it being an inherent and necessary part of product development like if you're yeah. developing a sleep app and your data suggests that you're not helping people sleep, that is a product problem that needs solving. Yeah. And yeah. having behavioral scientists and product developers and product managers and marketeers and others working together to solve it is, is all, everyone should be working towards the same aim. It shouldn't feel like two competing agendas or separate processes. Yeah. Um, I think they are really complementary, the types of frameworks that, that startups and businesses will use, but just use totally different terminology mm. and language, as you described. And Rachel, what I'm really interested in is how, because I work in public health, effectively, and I've always worked in public health. I, yeah. I, I worked in the NHS, in local authority, Public Health England, and now, and I've always been a provider in that space as well, actually, at the same time. Um, and whilst there are roles popping up now more and more behavioral insights roles behavioral science roles a that's become somewhat of a buzzword like it doesn't mean the same thing everywhere you Definitely. go job roles can look very different depending on who's written them and what they what they want from them we literally just put out a behavioral insights role our first one internally mm. for the growth that we're experiencing at the moment and even and I'm involved in behavioral science to a certain extent and and you know we're trying to apply it in the real world and, and even I was struggling thinking what well, where am I going to get information what does a behavioral insights person do on the day to day? And so yeah. we, we've been challenged to think about that ourselves a little bit. But what I'm really interested in is how you take your experience and your experience of trying to get people to buy into behavioral science being a, a normal part of um, the, the, the growth of an organization and translate it into to an existing quite dense bureaucratic um, system, like, for example, the health system, education, the, the you know, um, prisons and 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 uh, justice and reform reformation what what how can we take what you're learning and the ways that you're introducing it and and bring it to existing systems like health for example yeah it's Not a great a small question i recognize yeah no it's a great question and don't don't think it's one i'm going to be able to answer very well but one of the one of the important things i think is is the people who have the right skills and knowledge moving into different roles and moving across different sectors and bringing their experience and skills with mm. them mm. um we've seen you know more and more roles for behavioral scientists popping up in the types of contexts you've described but also in in early stage startups in big tech companies in 
local authorities and charities and big corporates. And they might not always be called behavioral insights person or behavioral science director. They they might have other job titles, but actually the skill set is basically the skill set of a behavioral scientist. And I think supporting behavioral scientists and 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 others in related roles to um to move into those types of jobs, to connect with each other so that they're sharing learning across sectors, to move across to different sectors if they're interested in doing so. We've just started a kind of PhD and postdoc placement program at Zinc to bring PhD students and postdocs in um, to get experience working with early stage innovators, possibly with a view to going back to academia, but to to get experience and immerse themselves in that context, learn what it's like to work in that kind of super fast paced, agile, creative Mm -hmm. environment, and then maybe move on to a role in public health or in the NHS or in education or in Mm -hmm. policy or in a local authority. And I think having more visibility of the the options that are out there, more connection between those types of applied scientists um, would be one step in the right direction to trying to kind of get that cross fertilization mm. you've you've described. Yeah, and that's coming up more and more. And I think that might be because I steer it this way very often. <laughs> I, I've read numerous, well, I read reasonably widely around this topic, particularly around the sociology as well as the, the psychology, because... I think it doesn't have the same language it doesn't share the same language with some of these um these areas that, that industry business you know yeah. health that, that psychology does but it's a shame because it's a it's a really amazing and important part of helping helping create meaningful and sustainable change mm-hmm. um but i i've talked i i'm not even going to talk about it too much because i've talked about it i think probably the last four or five <laughs> podcasts in a row but <laughs> but that 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 um that notion of diversity and adding that to teams by by bringing people from different areas in and i love the idea of phd students coming in for a time to sort of look at the pragmatic application of things and then take it back to academia because there is for me a dearth still in the number of you know where where the the what what's done in in academia and what's done in the real world i still think that's quite rare when that crosses over in a really meaningful and productive way um things like i was even talking last week about a knowledge transfer partnership Mm -hmm. but for small innovative agile organizations the ones that should be engaging in those they're too expensive exactly and for big ones they become quite anodyne and quite boring and uh, this is this is that's not a comment on all ktps i'm sure there have been some really really good ones i just don't i just it seems that the balance doesn't seem right to me it seems like we should be trying to to better better connect small agile innovative organizations that really could actually be the next big thing if they had the money to sort of get some 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 support from the academics yeah i agree and there's there's a few different reasons why i think that's particularly interesting as an opportunity one is in the early stages you have a huge opportunity to influence the direction of travel Mm. in small teams if you're collaborating with a small startup working in a small startup you have this opportunity to work across pretty much all aspects of the business, influence the direction it's taking, yeah. and and you can make that happen quite quickly and learn learn quite quite quickly. And I think the other side of it is, especially in the context of mission driven startups, startups in health and education and related areas, it is also helping to break what can feel like quite a binary divide between businesses and Mm. 
academia um, and help to give particularly early career researchers exposure to worlds that in which they can serve an agenda they care about that aligns with their values but that is a bit different to the world they might be used to experiencing so I think there's a few reasons why those kind of earlier stage businesses are interesting for those types of collaborations and partnerships but we have to incentivize them and support them more than we currently are yeah for sure and and I, I totally hear what you're saying there um about not being able to influence in the bigger organisations, because uh, I was talking to one of my colleagues, Sterling Rippey uh, from Hounslow Council, um, mm-hmm. who we're doing a project with, it, and her Sterling, numerous people, numerous people from BSPHN, lots of that they work. If they are managing to work in health, for example, in public health, they'll very often come in, be brought into projects at the, near the end to say, "Oh, can you just?" Ooh, could you just behavioral science that a little bit? Could you just, yeah. could you just put some nudge stuff around it yeah. or just, you know, whatever they're understanding. When you're behavioral using sciences. behavioral science as a verb, it's a problem. That's exactly what they're, and I think that is what it is very often. It's, oh, could you just behavioral science this for me? Could you just like put a, put a bit of, you know, the, the magic Yeah, there's a colleague and, and... of mine um, or a guy I've worked with who calls it a fig, the fig leaf of science where someone's just wanting <laughs> the stamp of approval to say a behavioral scientist looked at this, but without doing any of the work that that, actually involves it's a really big it is a really big problem when that happens same thing with evaluation actually and i hear this from academics that i work with and have worked with in the past quite a lot they're they're brought in at the end to say can you evaluate this and they're like well yeah how much money have you got oh about a tenth of what you really need oh okay um how do you want me to do that then in reality but that it's just the way things have evolved and no one wants to pay the full amount because it because it's really i mean i'm, I'm not I'm blaming them we, we can't afford to either it's really expensive to to do these like i say these kcps or even just a, a you know a partnership with uh, a university for example because they're expensive to work with in that way it's a fine line because i think you know in some cases a lot of what I've done in the roles that I've had has been, you know, giving a bit of quick input here and there, giving advice based on a relatively quick bit of research or best educated guess. And you have to reconcile it by thinking, hopefully it's better than it would have been without the input of a behavioral scientist, even if it's not as good as it would have been if you'd had someone involved throughout and from the beginning. So it is a fine line and it partly comes down to the motivations and values of the person you're working with. And if it's a case that they just don't have the time or the budget, but they are genuinely motivated, want to get it right, want to do it well, I think there is um, there is scope to try and give input where we can, try and be helpful where we can, um, where there's someone where you get the impression that it is more like the kind of stamp of approval without anything yeah. behind it. I think that's a bit more tricky to navigate. It is. Yeah, no, it is. I don't think we're going to solve it today, Rachel, to be honest. But but it's good to have the conversation yeah. and put it on the table. And uh, for everyone listening, you know, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And, you know, are you, in a, are you in a unit somewhere where you get asked to just come in at the end and, and produce this fig leaf of science that, that Rachel mentions? Uh, I'd love to hear a bit more about that, actually, because I think as as it becomes particularly in public health which is where i'm, I'm based you, you there's definitely this buzzword effect and so when, when i'm talking to people about behavioral science now or behavioral insights or whatever they're calling it I'm very inquisitive as to what that means to them because if it means 
we just want to say and, and another one is co-production and, and there's yeah. lots of other different things that people are now using because they're the, they're the new buzzwords behavioral science is probably on its way out now and people are starting to understand a bit more and co-production yeah. and asset-based community development those types of things are coming through now um but i'm always keen to understand what people mean when they talk about those things and try and sort of see if we share a a view a viewpoint on that and not that they have to conform to what i think but i'm willing to be changed in that conversation you know but um it's definitely an interesting an interesting time. I think it's gotten oh more complicated. The fact that the profile of behavioral science has been raised and, you know, there's huge demand for behavioral scientists and a whole bunch mm. of different organizations, as we've talked about, is mostly a good thing. The It's gotten more complicated also because, you know, in the context of the replication crisis, for example, yeah. there are people who have beliefs or perceptions or understandings of behavioral science based on something they've read or something they've watched or something they've listened to that are now outdated or have been challenged. And unless you're keeping up to date with the scientific literature, which a lot of people can't mm. or aren't, it's really hard to stay on top of what current um, evidence suggests. Uh, and yeah. so there is a lot of work, I think, by applied scientists in challenging existing perceptions or beliefs or bringing people up to speed because you get mm. this there's there is pretty good engagement around it and a lot of interest in it but it is often not based on up-to-date current evidence and it's yeah. gotten more um more of a challenge as the exposure and profile of behavioral science has grown in a way yeah it's i i, was, I heard on a i think another behavioral science podcast i can't remember it was probably probably um, behavioral grooves, I'd imagine. That's the one I listen to the most often. Um, they were talking about Thaler making a, the final edition. Maybe that's like a, oh, yeah. literally written it on there. So that's, then it can't, he can't go back on it. And, and, you know, it's actually a behavioral <laughs> system that he's putting in place himself. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. And, and also about um, Kahneman. I, I saw a debate online the other day about Kahneman, you know, people, people saying, I'm not going to read noise because, um, he hasn't retracted all of the stuff that, that, that hasn't, you know, for, through this replication. But could you give us a, a, a one minute overview of the replication bias? Because I'm not sure that everyone, don't worry if you can't go into too much detail, but just for people who haven't heard of it at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the kind of um, one liner would be that a lot of the landmark high profile findings in psychology and other fields have failed to replicate i.e research subsequent researchers or in some cases the same researchers have done the same study or a study using the same methods etc and failed to find um the findings that were previously published and that has happened um with a lot of landmark findings that people might know about in in behavioral science and in psychology and it has sort of shaken the foundations of a lot of these fields and it has led to a crisis of confidence in some cases in what we can trust it has also led to some really positive necessary reforms you know yeah. around open science and journal policy and publishing of null findings etc um so so in some cases it's it's really led to some positive constructive changes but it's been um it's been a, a really challenging um period i think for for psychology and other fields yeah so, so see that was an expert just description of that and, and sure for those that. listeners can't see but you, you definitely had a worried look on your face when I asked that question, <laughs> if someone says can you agree. explain the replication crisis in one <laughs> sentence that's the face you make 
it is but i think you did a great job so um <laughs> thanks for thanks for doing that i think um for those people who aren't necessarily party to a lot of that stuff that's actually quite good for them to know and we should be talking about it you mm-hmm. know we we sh- that's the whole point we should be talking definitely about the fact there is a crisis of that um rachel it's been great to hear about some of your uh you know wh- where you're at now what you're doing what, what would you what would your advice be to someone who is interested in behavioral science um and they're choosing maybe a postgraduate course or a, a, a career to go into um based on your experiences and where you think things are headed what, what would your advice to, to someone like that be yeah, I think the first thing would be to reach out to people who are doing jobs or in positions that you're in or in organizations that you're interested in. Um, I say this a lot and you hear this a lot, but it's true. I think you're always surprised by how open people are to having a coffee, talking about their journey, giving advice, making introductions so, so definitely kind of building your network, reaching out to people is, is really important. There's lots of online resources, online courses, podcasts like this that give a pretty good um, introduction and overview of some of the uh, roles that exist. I think there's still not huge visibility for, for a lot of people in academia. I think the world of applied behavioral science and applied science in general is still pretty opaque um so so listening to podcasts like this and hearing from people that are in those types of roles I think that is really important and then there are you know events and conferences that you can go to as well to build your network get to know people Mm -hmm. keep up to speed with journals of interest um and um and try to kind of um I think get exposed you know there's lots of courses and lots of universities now will put on opportunities to help students get involved get experience in industry or in um in the nhs or in government um and i think having that hands-on day-to-day experience is in my view more useful than than doing lots and lots of training courses online um i think just having the chance to get in whether it's through an internship or a placement or a consultancy project or a collaboration it's pretty hard to rival the the experience you get when you're thrown yeah. in the deep end. Um, so, so I think kind of try and reach out, see where you can get involved in projects, get some hands-on experience. Those are, in my view, the best way to learn. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, no, I agree. Thank you. Thanks for that. Okay, we're going to cut the show there. Um, Rachel did do some other um, recommendations and we closed the show off. But obviously, as I mentioned at the beginning, this show has been sort of made into part one of two. So um, Tiago and I will just close the show now and then we will um, be back in a week's time with more Rachel Carey. And I know that's a little bit disjointed. However, but please bear with us because the second show is also excellent. Right, I just want to say thank you again to Rachel and to remind people that this is actually the first of two parts um that was all recorded back in august 2021 which is why there's no dr tiago so that show obviously is uh, uh, a worse show for that however i do really love what <laughs> rachel was saying and i know that tiago and i both got really geeky when we listened to that show back and said we've got to keep as much as we possibly can because i think what she's doing is absolutely fascinating uh, can i just say something i found particularly interesting was um how rachel uh linked being an entrepreneur with being a researcher and yeah. working within the context of uncertainty, trying to win funding, 
write reports, um, experimenting things. So, and it was interesting to me to think because I've done a lot of research. I never thought, my, thought of myself as being an entrepreneur. So maybe mm. to all of you researchers out there, you're actually entrepreneurs at heart. Maybe, maybe. I think I think that's the point. Is you don't have to be one or the other. You can you can cross over. That's sort of, I suppose, Rachel's point. You can just be mission driven and go and do interesting work, and no matter what you've been doing or what you what you think you can do. So um, yeah, thank you to Rachel there. Um, please, please do check out bsphn.org.uk and check out the um, upcoming conference if you can get to it that would be great we look forward to seeing you there look forward to getting geeky with you uh, at that conference and talking all things behavioral science uh, as i said at the beginning of the show we've got the the latest installment of rachel's interview coming up in about a week's time we're going to release that so you can look forward to some up-to-date information and inevitably tiago was over talking so we've had to sort of split the show in two so um tiago any last words before we let people go back to their day uh, no, just thanking, thanking Rachel and kind of say that we've got a, um, everything ready to start recording with our next guest. And I'm very, very excited for that one as well. I think it's going to be a great show. Yes. Uh, do you want to tease us with who that is? Uh, shall I? Yes. <laughs> in the next one. We'll do it in the next one. Okay, right, right, we'll right. That's a teaser for you. So we'll do it after the next Rachel. This is incentive if you needed it. Uh, to listen to the next show with Rachel Carrier. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks, Tiago, and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you.